Welcome everyone, I'm Sally. I'm John, we are True Crime Investigators UK. John was a police officer serving for 30 years and most of those years he was a detective. Sally was a police officer before retraining as a lawyer to practice criminal law. And now we may be retired but we still review and investigate cases of interest and bring them to you through this podcast. For additional resources you can visit our website truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk and please remember to follow the show on your podcast app and that way you'll be notified of all the new episodes this is episode three of the old man and me the tony spencer story told in the words of his son jason At the end of the last episode, we heard how Tony was found not guilty on drugs offences, and that was after a five-month-long trial. Together with his legal team, Tony came across in court as the perfect gentleman and very charming. So much so, after the verdict, Tony met the jurors for drinks at a bar over the road. It just shows you, doesn't it, that when you do have the personality and charm, that you can win people over. And it sounds like... A formidable team, Tony and his two barristers, and they're up against the prosecution team who were less able to appeal to the jury in the same way. Yeah, we've seen it uh, several times, haven't we, and and you more than me in court, that it's really basically like real life, isn't it? That if you meet somebody and you talk to them and you engage with them and they're interesting, polite, respectful, like Tony was you've more chance that they're going to listen to you and take your point of view, which no doubt Tony and his barristers played out in the court and got the result they did. Yeah, they're going to come down on your side, aren't they, if you if you do win people over? Yeah, just like... A, I mean, we know it's a theatre, don't we, the courtroom? Oh, absolutely. And it's a, a performance put on and the jury of the spectators. They've never met any of the people before your impression before them counts and the evidence combined with that if you play play it right for the defence obviously you get the result that you want you only get one opportunity to make a first impression and if you've made a good first impression then you can build on that can't you yeah that, and that's what no doubt they do but clearly tony behaved impeccably when he was on remand so it wasn't just in court it was also in prison Unlike some others, and Jason mentioned Charles Bronson, and he's been in the news recently, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, Charles Bronson, most people will know him, and especially with his his recent appeal for parole, which was turned down subsequently. He's been in the media, the news, for many, many years. He's a total opposite to Tony, in that Tony, when he got sent to prison, used it as a learning process it was time out from his criminal activities kept his head down kept his head down didn't cause any problems was respectful to everybody and used that time also to research and make further contacts for his future criminal activities which he was thinking of and planning while he was in prison and then the polar opposite is charles bronson who's since being sent down for robbery initially has ended up with the majority of his life behind bars because he wouldn't conform. He committed numerous offences, staged protests and all sorts of things in the prisons which gained him more and more prison time 
And of course, his life's almost sort of been spent in prison and his recent appeal for parole has been turned down and he's inside and Tony's been out. So now, after being found not guilty after that trial, Tony's a free man again. So what's the plan? He evaluates what he's still got, what's happened to all the things, all the the boats and the cars and all this stuff he had. What's happening to the old workers? Where are they now? Who owes him money? Who's actually willing to throw it his way because they know he needs to start up again? That's when you find out who your friends are. And who are those all of a sudden say, I know I owed you so much, but I'm broke now and I've got nothing. Um, so he has to evaluate the landscape. But before he does that, he wants his, he wants phones. He needs some fresh phones because he can't talk to anyone until he's on fresh phones again. And his car's clean and valeted and everything's all... He starts working through everything, getting everything so it's all working and functional again. But the main thing is to start getting some work. And to him, work is getting more product in, which is getting more hash and amphetamine in, which considering he's just been found not guilty of that, he thought he might have reflected and thought, maybe I'll go in a different direction. But he didn't. No. One of the reasons is a lot of people are delighted that he's out because they're like, once he had gone, they weren't making any money. They were like, we were, we were doing brilliant when he was about. It was great. He used to get this stuff from abroad. That's all I had to do was sell it on. And because doing drugs is a very easy way to make money. It doesn't require a great deal of skill. It's just some contacts and um, I suppose some discipline and you trust the right people. So a lot of these people haven't made much money since he'd been away. So once your dad's out of the market, then that has a knock-on effect for all these other people. For those, all those other people, because all they, those other dealers. Yeah, they've lost a key supplier. Sure, they can get another supplier, but he won't be someone who's getting it direct. It'd be someone who's on a chain, and the prices are much higher. And maybe they'd be more intimidating. My dad was very friendly. You're dealing with a business person, and if you have bad luck, he's a sympathetic business person. You know, if you get raided and you've lost it, he'll be like, well, "I know how you feel. I've been there." <laughs> you know, well, good luck. Well, just get back to me once you're back on your feet. And if I can help you, he he would. So, so it made him a soft touch for people who were going to repay him. Sure. Does this, after that not guilty verdict, does the story have an inevitability about it? Yes, it's a, it's almost a duplicate of what happened before because he starts building back up again from scratch, uh, salvaging what he had before and start building up his cars again. He's obviously doing the same thing with phones. He switches the code. He tries a different code this time uh, and he starts linking up with all the people in the cities uh, his contacts abroad, he's got to get his passport back and get the supply moving uh, because he wants to rebuild what he had before. And that's what he does for pretty much six months. He's relentless. And after six months, I go over and see him. I've not seen him that much because after what's happened, I want nothing to do with it. Um, but I go over and see him and it's like I was a kid again. He shows me around everything he's done. He's like, I've got I've got this new unit. Well, I've done all this and we've got some more caravans there. We're doing this is the business we're doing. We've got some land down there. We've got a boat down there. And I'm like, well, you're doing all this. You know how this happened last time, ended last time. It didn't end well. Um, and you're acting like this is a normal business because everyone knows what you're doing now. Before you were well-known amongst criminals. Now you're well-known amongst people who aren't criminals. Unsurprisingly, six months he was at that point. And it's only a few months later. Again, he's on the canals. They're burying things in banks and all sorts again. And one of the workers spots a surveillance camera up in a tree. And rather than just ignore it, which is what you're supposed to do, and then just report it, he climbs up in the tree and pulls the camera down. And it's a real advancement on what the, uh, the regional crime squad have been using. And so my dad takes it and immediately with the police, there's a panic because they've been rumbled and they have to decide what to do. And my dad phones me up. He explains, look, I'm going to shoot off now. 
we're having a clear out. You need to have a clear out. And I'm like, I'm nothing to do with this. But that's his instinct. You've got to have a clear out, get rid of any anything to do with me, any paperwork, get rid of it, because I just don't know what's going to happen. But they'll be here soon. Uh, and he spent the whole day just having a clear out, uh, getting things offside and getting ready to go. But he didn't go quick enough, because at five the next morning, the raids do come. And he's still clearing out. He's just He must have thought he had another day or something. But they've come, and he gets remanded. It's almost like Groundhog Day. He gets remanded and ended up back at Woodhill um, on 60 days remand. He doesn't go for bail first of all, because he always says you won't get it first of all. Best do 30, 60 days and then ask for bail. You've got an argument then. Um, so he studies his paper like the prison lawyer he is. And he notices there's, there's an error in the dates on these um, on these figures for which he's to be remanded. They've miscalculated. Either they thought there was 30 days in the month or something, but they were days short. So he gets on to his lawyer and says, let's go for you know, get my full release, not to go out on bail, but just get released that day. And they turn up in court. There's no prosecution there. And the judge says, well, you're free to go. And he gets released. The prosecution are obviously fuming about this because within a day or so, he's got 24-hour surveillance on him again. And they're just watching him. You've constantly got a car behind him. And they're just waiting for him to slip up because they need him back on remand. They're trying to build a case. Because, again, they've gone in way too early. I mean, that sounds to me like the custody time limit has run out because you have uh, set deadlines when you've got somebody in custody and on remand um, to keep renewing their custody time limits and usually it's things like bank holidays that cause a problem because people forget to count the bank holiday and you end up a a day short Um, and of course if, if you've if you've got a breach of the custody time limits, then there's only one one thing that the judge can do. Usually, there are some exceptional circumstances, but that's, like you said to your dad, open the door and you're free to go. But as you say, the police will be very, very cross about that. And they put a surveillance team straight on him so that they want him back in custody to, to start it all again. That's what it sounds like to me. I'm yeah. not saying... That, that is I definitely think, what it's what it is, but that's what it, it sounds that's like, what that's it sounds what like happen. to me. That was the first time I saw him, and I'd go and drive with him, and there'd be a car behind us, and you, they were just there was always a car, and it was they were making it quite plain. We're watching you, and we're just watching you to slip up. That was the question I was just going to ask. Did they make it obvious? The I mean, yeah. the idea of surveillance that you're not obviously showing out that you are doing surveillance because if you if you're seen, you're not going to do anything. But of course, in previous discussions, as, we, as we've gone over, he, he sussed them out very often. Yeah. Whereas now, they were deliberately making it obvious that we're with you. Yeah. And he says that's what they're, they're just waiting for a slip up. They'll be straight on me. So he spent the time clearing everything up, wrapping up some deals. And then one night, he just disappeared. He hopped offside and just disappeared. And you know, while he was going back to his other trials and, and when he's not there, what happens to all these businesses that he's juggling, because he's he's the man, isn't he? If he's not there, what what happens? When he was inside, the number one thing, he says money doesn't matter. What matters now is freedom. These people, his fear with a lot of these businesses he'd bought was the police get onto him and find out how he bought them and say, well, we bought, well, I give you 50 grand in cash and an envelope. Uh, and he was like, well, that never happened. That's your business because it never happened. You can have your business back. And a lot of things he would give and trade back for goodwill. So when the police come knocking... They're going to say, look, I don't know what you've heard, but no, that didn't happen. Uh, I know Tony and that's it. And then he'd tell my dad, well, 
yeah, they have come, this is what I've told them. And each one would do that because they had a huge benefit by doing that. But it's that thing about doing massive favours for people. And to me, it seemed an incredible waste of money. But he said, what's money matter now? I'm locked it up here. This was when he was on remand. The main thing is I get out and I get my freedom. You can always make more money was his frequent phrase. And at this period, or, or during the discussions we've had, you know, there's this money laundering and uh, they can take assets which are criminally generated yeah. and all that sort of thing. So did that cause him a problem? It hadn't really come in yet. This is the later poker thing, isn't it? Mm. It hadn't really come in at that point. I think they could go through your assets, but you'd have to be pretty obvious with it. It was still thing where people put things in their partners' names and things like that. It was kind of weak, and I don't think you can really do that now. Um, but back then, it was it was just a bit clumsy, and I suppose everyone was still dealt in cash back then. Because that's the old idea of the poker, isn't it, Sally? That yeah, proceeds of crime, crime act. act. The idea is that even if you possibly don't get them hands on with mm. something or a conspiracy, you can still argue that their wealth and assets have come from criminal activity. Yeah. And that's why that was brought in. So if you didn't catch people like Tony one yeah. way, you had a chance of going another way. It's almost like when he was inside, he thought, I don't want any assets because assets are, can bring problems and they can bring problems with people I've dealt with who aren't really criminals and might speak to openly. So it was best just offload every asset you had, except the ones they didn't want anyway. So does it, this come back to where we've alluded to all the way through that this wasn't necessarily about making money to live in a fantastic house and have fantastic wealth it was more the thrill of getting away with it and outwitting the police i mean by then it become probably a source of resentment amongst a few workers who who committed themselves a great deal to him and didn't make money but were involved a great deal that it didn't seem to be about the money it didn't seem to be about where everyone did well financially it was really about him having this power and all this stuff he could do and this turnover and it was more about the turnover because he didn't quietly deal with a few people. It was quite manic. He dealt with like dozens of people all over the country. Um, and it was that thing, he didn't turn away from a deal very easily. But once he's, this group's kind of expanded tenfold, they realise you can't really have him here because they're still looking for him. And if he's arrested, all his contacts go with him. So we went abroad. They, sh- they smuggled him out to Amsterdam. And that's where we would work from that point on. As you describe it, it's almost like watching Dragon's Den, isn't it? That... There's these business people who, in their own right, have got businesses, but they need a dragon to push it to the nth degree and make vast sums of money yeah. in Dragon's Den. And, of course, when you talk to them or they say on there, why do you need a dragon when you're already a businessman? Well, we need you because you've got the contacts, you've got yeah. all the knowledge and the people we can go to that we can't. The way you just described that is moved up north and done a runner is... Small players have took him on board to make them big players, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, that's what they do. Because without him, they, they just couldn't become big players. They had regional contacts, and that's as far as they could go. But the heavy contacts and the international contacts, they just didn't have. So they basically brought a dragon on board. Yeah, like a big dragon. <laughs> he's got no money, but boy, he's got some contacts. There's a certain deja vu about how Tony's life pans out. Trial and or prison. Then when he's found not guilty or he's released... He starts from scratch again and goes on to rebuild his own world of criminality. So where to next? He ends up in Amsterdam and at that point the police are clearly looking for him. Um, there's no kind of playful nips homer and he's, they're seriously looking for him. He needs to be out of the country. So in Amsterdam he uses the name English John. Uh, he's always changed his name from like Pat to John to Steve. 
but he's called English John in Amsterdam. And he knows the Dutch bikers and the mafia that run the centre of Amsterdam. His international contacts are really strong. And that's where he operates from that point on. He has a safe house and then he has all these dotted bases, pretty much how we worked before, where he has little rooms he rents and caravans he rents in parks and things. And he has the old attic in the centre of Amsterdam. You know, like a room where if you need to disappear when no one will know where you are, you can just go to an attic where no one's just going to know where you are. You switch your phones off and disappear if you think someone's on you. So he had all these options wherever you went, and it was the same pattern he re-established, where you don't stay in the same place for more than two nights running. And he would do that from that point on. And he would be still doing his deals, but he couldn't control the distribution in the UK anymore. It was too dangerous for him to do that. And he'd presumably got helpers over in Amsterdam that took the place of the English helpers when he was over here. Yeah, I mean, some of them were people on the run from the UK, or some of them ex-inmates and... People who needed work and wanted to go abroad. So he had developed a little team there and started working with a few new people as well. Because a lot of the old people, the police would be on to the old people waiting for him to make contact. And teaming up with this other group meant he had to deal with other people he wouldn't normally deal with. And one of them was this man from Bradford named David Royal. And David Royal was a drug dealer of the time. Uh, He's quite notorious in the north of England. And what would happen would be he would, uh, he would get wind of a handover of a large amount of cash at Portsmouth and he and group would go and uh, rob that uh, that shipment of money. And that shipment was, uh, was it? it's about 220 grand and that wasn't my dad's money that he was looking after for somebody. So when they robbed it, it was a case of finding out who's done that and within about a few days they figured out who, who must have took it, where the leak was information-wise within the organisation and they traced it back and says, look, you're going to have to give this money back. This belongs to Tony Spencer and his contacts. And, well, basically, they're much bigger than you. You're going to have to give it back. At that point, there's a bit of a standoff because this is an up and rising guy. And he's just thought, I've gone to all this trouble to steal this money. And you're asking me to give it back. And it just seemed wrong that you would have to do that. What you've just said is, you know, over my police career, that there was dishonesty stealing off innocent yeah, law-abiding citizens, but within the criminal fraternity, there was also stealing and robbing money yeah. from other criminal gangs. And that's why you've got to watch your workers. These people who drive you around, they're the leaks. You've got to watch what they know, and they don't get too close to your good contacts or know too much about stashes and where money's being moved. When money's being moved, you've got to have as few people known as possible. So when something goes missing, you know, there's only a few ways this could have happened. And the, I trust him and I trust him and I trust him, but I don't know him. Mm. And so all of a sudden you start, and you, you like, once you've located the leak, then it's not hard to find out who's done that and um, trace them to the town and actually get someone to go knock on the door and say, by the way, we know you've done this. Here's a note. You need to ring this number. And that's exactly what happened with Royal. It's more prolific than we actually think because whoever's been robbed of criminal money or criminal property can't go to the police and say, I want to report a robbery. Uh, by the way, it's Nick stuff. Mm. So they're trapped, aren't they? And they know everybody knows that in that group. Yeah. That, that whatever happens can never go to the police with it because it's Obviously, criminal activity yeah. in the first place. So it's amongst them. So it's a case of reputation, who potentially could be very violent and get very nasty about this. If but there is this understanding. There were certain rules you were supposed to have played by. And you don't do that sort of thing for some people. For some people, they think it's fair game. But then, as far as my dad saw, he thought, you've just got to return the money. We can carry on with our business. You can carry on with yours. And that's how it goes. He just thought, well, you've been caught, so you need to return it. 
So we just put it down to experience. Yes, and experience. Don't do it again. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no rush to violence. There's a there's a resistance to get involved because that's bad for everyone's business. If you start having violence, it means each organisation gets damaged. The business of both sides gets damaged. There's grudges, and all of a sudden allies start getting dragged in. And all of a sudden you're working with people you can't trust. What you need to you want the status quo, where no, we go back to your business. Whoever you were dealing with, you deal with them, and we will deal with our people. And we won't deal with each other if we don't trust each other. But you need to return the money. And that was the understanding. It had to be that way. So word got back to this guy that the 190 grand or whatever it was that he'd stolen from another gang wasn't cricket, wasn't the done thing in the form. And we want our money back and you better pay up. Yeah. And he he was wound up because the message would be delivered to his family's doors in his hometown of Bradford. It would just be a knock and a polite, a big guy with a little note just saying, look, you need to pass this on and phone. But it's telling them, look, we know where you live and we know where your brother is and your sister is and we'll find out where you are. So there's no escape in this situation. You can't just blank your phone and it'll go away. You need to face up to this and do the right thing. So at that point, he has to decide what to do. And on his side, he'll make the phone calls and try and find out who, who's this guy I've robbed who's claiming that I've got to give it back. Who does he think he is? And so he starts doing his research and finds out he's an ex-bank robber. And he's a guy who's been done for conspiracy. One thing he does recognise, he's not part of a big family. Because if it's one of several people, a big crime family, you'll think, well, if I go for him, the other six are going to come after me. So it does occur, if you go after this one guy, what happens if you were to get rid of him? And this is what uh, Royal decides to do. He thinks, no, I I can get rid of this guy, Tony Spencer. And once I've demonstrated what I can do... It adds to my reputation. I don't want to mess with me again. But also his people will know that I don't return money. If I steal it, it's mine. And that'll be the end of that. So it's like a a power struggle, isn't it? Yeah. All of a sudden, after weeks of evasion and a few phone calls feeling one another out, Royal announces he's going to return the money. And he'll return it in Amsterdam one evening on a Friday. And he'll pick my dad up and they'll go off, get the money, and he'll hand it all back. And your dad agrees to that? He agrees to that. But it looks very odd that all of a sudden there's a change of tune. All this resistance has come to an end and he's going to return it. It seems very unlikely. And given this guy, he has a bit of a violent history and there's a lot of top people up north steer clear of him because he, he, go, he turns to violence quite quickly. He's an ex-soldier as well, so there's there's someone who's familiar with guns. Um, so when my dad goes to this meet, he's persuaded at the last minute. People have been saying it for days, you need to take someone with you or send somebody else or don't meet him alone. And he's persuaded to just take the small, like, 9mm gun, just for in case. At the last minute, he says, you're right, OK, I'm going to take it. And that's what he does. He takes the gun along, just for in case. Well, that's just up the ante. You've always said, haven't you, John, about villains who carry guns? Yes, the general perception is that uh, these people carry guns in case they're in confrontation with the police, where in most cases it's protection from each other. This has got disaster written all over it. You've got one man, David Royal, who's ex-military. I think he's sometimes referred to as the soldier. And he's meeting up with Tony, who we now know is armed. And there's a certain inevitability about this situation. Things don't feel right. There's a few signs that aren't right. One thing is the smell of the car. It's just been validated. It's fresh, like a rental. You know he's gone out and got a new car, which isn't right. And when he drives, he doesn't. It rains, and he doesn't know where the you know where the windscreen wiper is. 
he goes to, he has to fumble around to find it because it's getting so he's dark. So he's not familiar he's with not it He's not familiar with the car. My dad's picking up on these little signals because the, the light's going. He can't read the signs because the Dutch signs are very long. They're like about 20 letters in a, in a street name. And so he's struggling. He doesn't know the area either. So the, the, he's a little bit disoriented. So he's reading all these little signs that aren't right. And he's trying to get him to a specific place. Um, it's not very loose. It's not like his guy's going to come to him with the money because he can't find his way. It's like he's already, you know, you've got to get to this certain point, which in daylight he probably knew where it was. But as the light was going, he was struggling to get there. And then my dad's realising there's something's not right here. And then he drives down to the Dockland and finds an isolated place. And my dad notices the street lights, the lights aren't working, they're out. Which is, they've got quite a dark spot here and it's an ideal place. For an ambush. Yeah, there's no residential houses overlooking this like there is in the other parts of that section. Then the guy's... He's got a bit of a problem because he gets there and there's no one there. There's no ambush. And it's only later he realises, my dad realises, he, he was out of position by about 100 yards and he got the wrong bit of tarmac or whatever to do with this factory. And so his guys were spending a couple of minutes figuring out what went wrong and then realising what had happened and then getting over to the car. So the couple of minutes were just sitting there. This guy's trying to appear calm and my dad's realising something's wrong here. And then all of a sudden there's a knock at this window where a bang at his window and the door comes open and there's a man there uh, with a mask and with a pistol held out and tells him to get out of the car. And at that point, he's got a decision to make. So how many of them, there's the soldiers, we'll call There's him. the soldier who's driving. Who's there's at least one. There's was... one with a gun and then there's another figure in the background. In the dark, of course. Yeah, in the dark. It's getting dark now. He's got to figure what he's going to do here because if they get him away from the car and they shoot him, there's no forensics on the car. And his reasoning is, if I stay near the car, they're going to be, they've got a problem because it's a, it's obviously a rental car and they've got these forensics on the car and everything. So my dad's pausing, he's going slow here and they're insisting, look, you need to get out of the car. And my dad's obviously got his pistol on the inside. And so as he steps out of the car, he slowly goes for his gun on the inside of his jacket and he's kind of shielding himself so the guy doesn't see what he's doing. But he couldn't have done it that well because the guy panics and all of a sudden, a blast goes out, and a bullet kind of strikes my dad in the chest, just as he's getting up. And at that point, the guy just staggers back. He's more surprised than my dad was. And my dad's kind of reeling back a little bit. He's kind of He knows it's gone off, and it's, I suppose, has it hit me, has it gone in me? Or maybe, I'm not sure if he can feel the pain immediately, or I've never been shot. But rather than go down, which is what you would expect, he continues getting back up, and he pulls his gun out, and then he starts shooting. And the guy who's fired at him, he shoots him, he goes down. The other guy in the, in the shadows, he runs off. And then Royal quickly gets out of the car, looks over quite stunned, and he's surprised my dad's still standing. And it's apparent that Royal is not armed himself. And then my dad staggers over, leans on the car, and then just raises his arm with a gun, and then shoots him in the chest. And Royal goes straight down. And then my dad just watches for a moment, just to steady himself. And as Royal stops moving, he's he's not getting up, he's, he's gone. Once he's done that, he looks around and starts to figure out, right, I need to get out of here. And then he starts staggering away towards a safe house. And even though he's just been shot, one thing he picked up is where the river was, because the river's to the south, and he's got a safe house north of the river. And he knows he's, he's within less than a quarter of a mile of his safe house, his, his old safe house, that is, when he first went to Amsterdam, which was the bar. And he starts staggering towards the bar, like in the shadows. And now it's getting dark and there's not many people around. And so that's what he does. 
And manages to get back. Manages to get back. And at the bar, to do with the Dutch Mafia, they get into another safe house and they get a vet out to him. And uh, A vet? A vet, yeah. I mean, the first time it's a vet. Later they'll get a doctor. Right. But immediately it's the vet's the quickest one you can get. So they get the vet and he's just got the, you know, the things for the to check the bullet over and he's got access to all these uh, tablets and whatever it create whatever he's got. Um, so they get him to the safe house and the vet's estimation is, look, you, you've got like 48 hours and you're going to have to ride this through and see what happens. You might pick up, but it doesn't mean you're going to pull through. You might pick up and then just go downhill. But he says, you just can't really, I've done everything I can. You're just going to have to wait 48 hours. And that's at that point he rings me and tells me, look, I've had a bit of a problem. And his voice is very weak. And he says, can you get over? He says, I've, I've had been a car accident. And then I say, right, okay, then I'll be, I'll be over as quick as I can. And then he asked me to get his girlfriend, Blondie, and another lad. Uh, I get them and I just shoot straight over to Amsterdam as fast as I can. It, with the view that this thing with the guy from Bradford has gone bad and he's been beaten or something. Not that he's been shot, I just think they've obviously jumped him and he's had some sort of beating of some sort. And so on my drive to Amsterdam, that's what I'm thinking. And I'm thinking, Christ, this it really has to stop this. This is, this is really getting out of hand now. Because up to that point, that sort of violence hasn't happened. And is this escalation in violence because there was more people getting involved, more money? There was, like, it, huge sums of money. It wasn't now. the sums of money, it was the people. Mm. Because it wasn't his people, he was partnered up with this other group, he had to deal with people he wouldn't normally deal with. Right. Because um, normally he chose... And the, the people he chose normally were people he'd been inside with and were more old school. The people he partnered up with weren't so much old school, and the people they dealt with weren't. It was more, you know, like at Liverpool and Nottingham area, they were all... It's smaller gangs, and it's, a, it's more violence involved up there. Yeah, so the, he, he wasn't particularly used to dealing with that, these new up-and-coming people. Yeah, there wasn't really there wasn't the, the discipline old. or doing the right thing. They didn't operate by those rules, which is what he was used to, because he handpicked who he worked with. There are certain people he wouldn't work with, like people who, if they had drug problems or they were violent, he, he'd steer clear of those people. He accepted they existed, but he thought, I can't do business with people like that. I have to do business with people who are efficient and professional and treat people well. Now Tony's been shot and he has shot David Royal dead, the world is now a completely different place for Tony. But the person treating Tony's very serious gunshot injury is, in the first place, a vet. Well, you could hardly go to hospital and uh, go to A&E Clearly, questions would be asked with a gunshot wound, and no doubt the police would be informed. So that's not an option. Your vet's looking the best. You go over and arrive there, and what are you confronted with? There's a guy called Sowerby at the door. He's one of my dad's workers, and he tells he tells me, "Look, he's been shot." It's and there's a bit of a stunned silence because this is kind of new territory. And he just leads into the living room, and it's just all dark, quiet. No phones are on. All the phones have been dumped. And there's a lamp on, and my dad's just lying there on this uh, like medical bed set bed thing he's he's got, and then he just stirs, and then he just what he normally does, he just says, "Oh, are you all right? How's the how's the trip?" <laughs> all these little things he used to always ask when we used to go visit him in prison or whenever you see him, he'd always ask, "How, how, how did you get here? You been all right? You know, or anyone follow you or anything? Any trackers or?" And I explain, "No, everything's fine. I've left the car where I'm supposed to. I've got no phone or anything because he's worried about." The phone's being tracked to the, the location. There's kind of a stunned silence. How, how are you supposed to do this? No one's getting upset like they would in a film. It's just, you're just digesting it. 
and what can you do which isn't a lot and how is it going to be and how serious is it you just want this information so he tells me what happens after i because i'd seen my dad a week before he gives me an update of what happened after which is a bit annoying because i told my dad this didn't sound right but it's happened now and my dad's in the living room talking with Blondie, explaining it's not as bad as it looks, he says. <laughs> I mean, just Having been, shot, just in been the... shot in the yeah, chest. Yeah, yeah. Following that, because we've arrived, he stops taking some of his medication so he can stay awake because he wants to talk. Um, and it's just it's so much medication on his little, little table in front of him. It, they're just kind of, it's trying to drug himself up until this 48 hours passes. But as he stops taking his meds, he comes round and he tells us the story about what happened. And that's what we do. We're in this room and it's absolute, like I said, just his voice there. All the phones are off and everything. And we just listen to him tell this story of what happened at the docks and all the little things about the car and the, the smell of the car and where the river was and all these little details. And then the shooting step by step. And he just tells us the whole story. And then once he's done the story, he talks about, well, he's got these deals on the go and those meetings in a few tomorrow that they're going to have to cancel them. But not cancel them for good, reschedule them. <laughs> Just let him, give him a few days yeah, to recover. Yeah, he needs a few days. <laughs> and he needs to make sure no one knows where he is. So we can't have any phones. We're going to get some fresh ones tomorrow. But this is assuming he's still here. Because when he tells us what the doctor says, the doctor says, well, he might improve, but that could be a sign that he's going to go downhill. And as he's now trying to talk to us, maybe this is when he's improving. So it's touch and go. What If he goes to sleep, is he going to wake up again? At some point, does he just stop breathing? And that's it, because he's shot in the chest, in the arm or the leg, anywhere. But the chest or the head is the two places you, you're you not very optimistic about. No. So it is just sitting around all night. I, I slept in the living room. He slept on his medical bed, and it was just occasionally just drifting off. I've been driving all day. And every time you woke, you just stood in him to check his his chest was moving, that he was breathing. Because you, you know, you're just worried about losing him at any time. Um, but by morning, he's still there. And he starts to move about in the morning. And the first thing he wants to do is have a shave and get himself cleaned up. And the reason he wants to do that is because he wants people to come and see him now. Just because the last 24 hours, a lot of people would have thought, well, he's gone now. He's, he's been shot. That's him finished. And there'll be panic. And he wants to assure people he's OK. And he's something like 36 hours in, but he's sure he's going to be OK now. But he wants visitors and he wants new phones. And he wants to, he wants to keep the communication tight. He only wants a few people to know where he is, but the Dutch people need to see him and they can tell everyone else, but he trusts the Dutch people. And so he starts arranging all these meetings as soon as the phones are set up. And he's still lying down on his stretcher bed. He still can't walk around or anything. And he complains, he says, it's it's like having broken ribs. He says, it's really, because it's gone through the ribs, it's really painful. Like anyone who breaks their ribs will tell you, it's just a slight movement. So it's still extremely painful, but he's insistent he's got off these meetings. People have got to speak to him. And sure enough, within a few hours, the first people start appearing and they start talking about all these deals he's got on the go and everything and him talking as if they're going to carry on. Because, Back to business. Yeah, this is mere scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, that was probably the time where I just thought, this is just crazy. This is because at some point you should pause and, you know, this is just no sort of life, really. But he just saw it as no business. Things are going to move forward still. But do you see that as a, a defining moment or a, or a turning point? For me personally, it was. Because I'd always wondered why he was the way he was. And in the months leading to that, when he went back to the drug business, and it was such an obvious repeat of what had gone on before, it was just a parallel. You could just see, you're doing exactly the same thing as you did before. Why on earth are you doing that? Because thinking about it, you've always done this. 
except you've been doing it so long now it's more of an obvious pattern and so I, I was start to wonder why but once it got shot there was also that why don't you really have any regrets why aren't you learning from what's happened before mm. there was a lot of whys about his behavior and why so obsessed with this because even when you have money you're not saving any it's all about tomorrow and you waste so much and it's clearly not about the money it's about something else you sound like you're you're trying to make sense of it why is he redoing what he's done before and that turned out badly and now we've got a result of he's been seriously injured somebody else has been shot dead you're now asking all of these questions and it just makes you wonder that your dad was never asking those questions of himself yeah there was a like, like a lack of self-awareness yeah there. yeah because it's from the outside it was quite obvious that the, there's these strong really strong patterns here um but you don't seem to be learning from anything as brilliant as you are and how great at all, you're not doing a pretty basic thing, which is learn from your mistakes. He's now, you're there, he's, he's okay in a roundabout way. He's wanted by the British police for absconding. Mm. What do the Dutch police do? Well, the Dutch police are going around all the bars trying to find this guy who shot somebody. Uh, there's some sort of eyewitness that saw the end of it and saw him shoot uh, Royal in the chest. So someone's seen that. So they know there's a guy nearby and the witness described him as injured as if he took a beating. They didn't appreciate he'd been shot. They thought he'd been beaten. But they thought he was injured and nearby somewhere. Someone must have seen something. So they're going door to door in the area and then going in the nearby bars and they go to the bar which took him in. And they're kind of asking. They have no idea who he is. But one thing's apparent is he's left a palm print on the on the car and obviously because he's been shot there's a there's a chance there's blood at the scene as well so eventually they are going to find out who he is once they've gone through all their searches and they realize he's an englishman they'll go abroad and then eventually they're going to find out it's him but he's got to get out of holland now because inevitably once they know who he is um, and the fact he's shot somebody they're going to want him anyway so he needs to get out and the obvious place is to get to get down to spain so that's what happens then he goes eventually to spain yeah they they take him down in some sort of converted ambulance the Dutch do drive him down to Spain because uh, he, he can't sit in a car because he's still got these these breaks in the ribs from the shooting um, so he lies down and they drive him down to Spain uh, and he sets up again in a place called Casta del Fels uh, south of Barcelona which is away from all the normal criminals on the Costa del Sol because he's kind of wanted in two countries now and it only takes one person to so we settled in Casta de Fels, a small sleepy resort village, and that's where we'll stay for the next year or two. So Tony has now gone to ground, not drawing attention to himself. He's staying out of the way, not going to where the other criminals in Spain congregate. He's in this village near Barcelona. What's he going to do? So I asked Jason, does he start his drug business again in Spain? He's, yeah, he starts pretty much immediately again. It's almost a continuation, but he focuses upon hash and his contacts in Morocco because he can't travel anymore. He can't pop back and forth to Holland because at some point he's going to have a problem. And he can't do airports for the same reason. Because as he says at airports, if they identify who you are, you can't get out. So you can't do airports at all. So that leaves the cars and you've got payages all over Spain. So at certain times you want to avoid them as well and you can't go to the borders. So it's kind of restricted a little bit more and he's backing off from certain contacts he doesn't completely trust. So his world's getting a little bit smaller 
and he's still working. But then what happens in the UK is the Sunday Mercury run a, a two-page spread about the five most wanted men. And my dad's num he's number one. And they describe him as a killer and a drug dealer. And it's it goes throughout all the Midlands newspapers. And it says they believe he's in Spain somewhere. But they know about this thing in Holland. They've connected him with that now. So that's not going to go away. And they do have his DNA at the scene. So all of a sudden there's even less people he can contact now. Because you don't need one person to say, look, I saw him in Castle de Fels a few weeks back. So his circle of people he can deal with gets smaller and smaller. And a lot of the people he used to trust, he just can't trust. So it makes it harder for him to earn his living. And he ends up borrowing money while he's on the run. Because it's very easy for other criminals to take advantage of you when you can't go to certain meetings and you can't put your foot down on certain things. And they think, oh, I don't know, I can, I can steal. And he's never going to know because his workers aren't involved anymore. Mm. So he kind of gets exploited on the run by fellow criminals. He borrows a lot. And then eventually he gets arrested in a outside a, a house in Malaga, which has got a load of, I think it's three ton of hashish inside. And he pulls up in a van and surveillance police are all over them. And at that point, he has some chest problems, which has come up now and then since the shooting, because every now and then it flares up. And one of the police officers will get him a cup of water from inside this house where the hash is. And later they'll say, well, you're in the house because your fingerprints are on a mug we found. And uh, that's part of the evidence against him. And... He's under the name Graham Penny at this point. So he gets remanded to, I think it's Al Hor in prison, where a lot of the smugglers go. A lot of Colombians and all these South Americans. So he's making more contacts there while he's waiting for his trial. And then when he does have his trial, he pleads not guilty. He puts up this massive defence with his top Madrid lawyer. And it's over in two days. And he's found not guilty and gets seven years. They don't really hear, listen to the defence. And he can't speak Spanish, so he's just listening a great deal. And before you know it, it's just over. And he gets seven years. His colleagues, they all get six years, but they've all received bail in the meantime and none of them are in court because they've all jumped bail. Because back then the understanding often was with the foreigners, well, we, if they pay their bail, they've kind of effectively paid for their, their sins. And if they disappear, well, that's that really. It was a way of keeping things cheap and simple mm. and you haven't got to pay for them while they're in prison. I think it's three or four Kerikus all disappear. They go to Ireland, back to the UK and my dad's the only one left and he gets his seven years. He gets uh, sent to Madrid, a place called Valdemoro, which is one of the toughest prisons in Spain, apparently, but it's not somewhere he grumbles about. He's, he's kind of used to that. And then he gets extradition papers because they want him in Holland now. This thing with David Royal, he's been accused of murder and he's going to be extradited. So from that point on, he's got another challenge now, which is he's serving seven years. But he's facing life in prison in Holland. During all that time, it was all about hash. The hash from Spain, it was smuggling it in on boats and rib boats. And he bought this container unit, this smuggling boat at great expense. Nearly a quarter of a million because it, it was an experienced boat with a long track record. And it came with the skipper. And the skipper was going to run the boat for six months as well until my dad got his own skipper. But it had all these smuggling compartments all around the boat. And it was tried and tested. And my dad thought, we're going to make an absolute fortune with this. So it's well worth the money. Except the skipper hadn't declared there was fines on this boat that he hadn't paid, which is why he was selling the boats. And the first time they took the boat out, it got seized because of all these fines he hadn't declared. So how big a boat was it? Well, some people said it was a ship. Yeah. I never actually <laughs> saw this, but it was a quarter of a million. And it was described as a ship by the, the Spanish. My dad always called it a boat. But it, it, was, it was a large thing. And like I said, it was an old vessel. And it, it was so an experienced vessel as well. So it was, it'd gone through thousands of times through customs in Spain. Like I said, it'd done its runs to Morocco and earned its money and everything. 
But the fact the skipper came with a boat during that period, my dad was going to devote himself to learning how to, to sail boats as well. That was another thing that he would develop. But he never got a chance in this case. It basically, like, what capacity would the ship have for drugs? Well, it'd be bringing bring tons and tons. tons. Of, yeah, easily tons, yeah. So, But it was that thing, he'd spent a quarter of a million on a boat while he's on the run, which is difficult to earn when you're on the run, and he'd just blown a quarter of a million on a boat. And he thought, well, we'll get it back later, but what we'll do in the meantime, we'll do rib boats. So he bought a few more boats, and then a, he, he put this consortium together of three or four gangs he trusted in from the UK, from Brighton, Coventry, London, and there was another area up north. And they did the rib boats for a while. But at one point, there was some difficulty because after 9-11, the American Navy settled in the Mediterranean and it disrupted all the smuggling routes the smugglers were using. So they had to go up the coast where it's a lot wider. So my dad and they're all doing sailing, learning about sailing, but they're amateurs really. And the short routes that the smugglers used to use, they can't use the short routes. They've got to use, use the long routes. So they're battling with the weather and their inexperience. And so that doesn't last long. But it's all about diversifying. But he blows a lot of money on boats while he's out there. So, like I said, he accumulates these debts because he's on the run. And it's difficult to deal with people in the UK because they can exploit the fact you're on the run, not to pay certain things. So whereabouts in the place, where's the biggest place where he was nearby? Where? Yeah, Barcelona. Barcelona. Was by, yeah. And how far is that across to north? Well, America? they'd go south to, you know, the coast, the Costa del Sol. Yeah. But you couldn't go where the short bursts were because the American Navy was there. You get picked up too easy. So to go back from Barcelona, they go down Costa del Sol and across until the navy yeah. disrupted it. And what sort of speeds do these boats do? Are they really, really fast route? They're kind of banned amongst during certain hours. They were banned then because the police struggled to keep up with them because they were like recreational boats. So you couldn't really. They drew attention when they were on the water because the police, the English with a rib boat up here, we know what they can be used for. Yeah. So you had to kind of put them out at the last minute and do your run and get them back quickly. So it's kind of a military operation. I can, he really enjoyed this. It's like something from World War Two, you know, when you've got all these guys on a mission and there's about 10 of you and you all got your roles. He, he used to really enjoy what he was doing. They all had code names, all on walkie-talkies, on clifftops and everything. And it was all very coordinated and they were holed up in a little fishing village. So he actually enjoyed that, but it was really difficult because of the weather the distance they had to travel because it was getting too far. You Really, you did need a ship, mm. not a rib boat. It was too far. And how much could you get on a rib boat? I think you were limited on a rib You didn't get, the, not like a ship. Oh, it's, no. I couldn't tell you. I don't, I don't know if you'd get a ton on it. I'm not really sure. It's just not the, it's not the large numbers you would like. Yeah. Which is why they do frequent runs. And this carried on for how long doing this type of... This carried on until the, for months until the bad weather came in and they had to come to a halt. And then it was back to doing things by lorry where you just buy them from the Moroccans, put them on a lorry, and it goes to the UK. That went on, but he spent a lot of money on boats, and his earning power had really gone down because he was dealing in hash, and by that point, a lot of people were growing hash in the UK. It'd become a lot easier, mm. and the quality was better, mm. and a lot of the stuff coming from Morocco wasn't that good. The Moroccans would try and sell you off the worst stuff, mm. and often it would get back to the UK, and people, the standards had gone up, and they'd be like, well, we, we ain't paying for this, it's rubbish, mm. or it's not good enough, or we want mm. a low price. So it started to become difficult with hash. I said all the homegrown stuff was much better here and it's much cheaper. So the market changed as well. And how was he getting it from Spain to UK and elsewhere? It would just come by the lorries. You had these lorries that run from Spain up to the UK and back again. They were always on the lorries. Usually the ones that would go by Holland. So they'd put hash on in Spain and then it got to Holland and they'd put amphetamine on and all these other like ease and the, that the chemists had made. And then it'd go into the UK 
and then you'd have the importer in the UK would break it up and distribute it like my dad used to. And then it would go all around the country, you know, going from wholesalers to smaller dealers to really small dealers, and it just... So instead of importing, like, tomatoes and stuff from Spain, it was drugs, but the yeah. same network, same principle. The same principles. Wholesalers, yeah. networkers, transport. And it's all organisation, because you're doing it across three countries, so it does regard... It's a lot of organisation to do. So you do need someone business-minded to do it, because they won't be able to do it more than once. You need someone who can do it week after week after week. And was it hidden within the... The lorries. Yeah, the lorries were always kind of fitted out. There's always some great new idea that we'd put it in and they'd run it. And when the transport, as they called it, went down, like customs got onto it, it was damaged that company was. So you'd have to switch to a different transport. You think, we can't use that again. They're going to be watching it all the time now, so you'd have to get a different transport. And they allowed for the fact that a certain amount of transports would go down. So like say, the wastage. Yeah, say you lose one in ten. <laughs> you know, oh, well, that's to be expected. Yeah. But if you're losing one in five and your luck is bad and you get two on the bounce... That really puts you on the back foot unless you keep resources back, which my dad never did. If he had two on the bounce, he'd be borrowing all over the place. He didn't anticipate two losses on the bounce. It rarely ever happened. But I think he saw it like a casino. It's just like he just had some bad cards. He'd have some good ones in a minute. Yeah. And that's the way he just rolled with it. Because it's murder, it's an extraditable offence. So he can fight it. He has this guy, Oscar from Madrid, a top extradition lawyer. And they're going to fight it, but he's going to have to go eventually. And eventually, that, that is just what happens. He has to go, and he's going to have to face up to the royal situation. So it's after a few years he lands in Holland, which is a great break from Spain, because in Spain he's had these problems with his chest from the gun injury. But one thing that, that kind of benefits him in a way is, because this bullet, it was called a dum-dum bullet that royal fired into him, and it fragments as it goes into your body. So he essentially has the evidence inside him that he was shot at this incident in Holland. So when he gets to Holland and they realise he's been shot in the chest and he has, you can x-ray it and it's all there, the spray and everything, they realise, well, this isn't really murder, it's manslaughter. So they lower the charges to manslaughter and he goes on trial for manslaughter. But there's no jury, it's three judges. And the judges, they accept he's a, a drug dealer and a drug smuggler and everything. But they say, we're not really interested in that. We just want to know about the shooting and what actually did happen. And then my dad explains the story of how he kind of shot him in self-defence. He admits the point that he took a gun along because that's about the only point so like I said they hear him out and it's quite straightforward as it works out they just simply find him not guilty but largely because he has this bullet still inside him that's causing him all these problems now fragments keep getting infected it keeps taking antibiotics and painkillers it clears then six weeks later it comes back again but it's these bullet fragments that really get him off because without doubt he's shot in the chest and if someone shoots you in the chest that's intended to kill you Mm. so his plea of self-defence was accepted. Why didn't he have them removed or looked at? Was, or was he thinking ahead that it, this would be good evidence? I think the plus there was pluses and minuses. When he was at Madrid, he had pause for thought because he came across a doctor at Madrid when he had these problems. And he says this doctor had worked out in, I think it's a Croatia, where he had experience with gun wounds. And he says, you need to get this out because it'll, it'll end up killing you from inside. Like a cancer, it'll, it will get you that way. And that made him think... But the plus side was he had his evidence inside him. But once he'd been cleared in Holland, he needed to get it out. And at that point, the Dutch made promises they would, but they never did. And he thought maybe it's the expense they don't they don't want to spend on foreign prisoners anymore. And maybe they didn't have a lot of sympathy, to be honest. So he later gets transferred to Spain. And again, they have the same attitude. Well, don't have a lot of sympathy, but why should we pay for this? And so it's a case of it just stays there. There's x-rays made. 
He still has these health problems with these bullet fragments getting infected, but it just stays there. At the end of his sentence, they put him on a plane and they return him to the UK, still with a bullet inside him. So he's found not guilty in Holland, but he's still serving prisoner in Spain. Has to yeah. go and finish his time. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And then after he's done that, they don't want him in Spain anymore. No, and did they he... know that the police were looking for him in England? I presume there was Yeah, some... but they're not concerned. But the police in the UK want him for conspiracy, and it's not a crime in Spain. You can't extradite him for conspiracy from Spain. That is the problem there. But the, the concern is he gets to the UK and they arrest him at the airport, charge him and then remand him. Because they, they could quite easily do that. But it's been, I think, around six years by this point. So you're kind of hopeful that they'll have dropped it. His view was it wasn't a, a strong case in the UK. But the British police might have thought it was. Mm. When he arrives back in the UK, I've been writing to him throughout all this period while he's in Spain and Holland and back to Spain again. And he's told me all about this injury and all these health problems he's had. And I do expect him to be, you know, a right, a right mess, really, like really deteriorated. So I'll go to Heathrow Airport and wait for him there. And he's expected to land, and he, he must have landed, but he doesn't come through. And an hour passes, and it does occur he's been arrested, because we were kind of half expecting that. But then all of a sudden, he walks through, walks through the gates, and he looks as healthy as ever looked. He's got a lovely tan. He's kind of big and strong again. Carrying his cases, like, you know, all his paperwork and everything like that. Just feathers, he's kind of as strong as he's ever been. I think, you've been shot. You sp- I thought, what happened to all these health problems you had? And he's as cheerful as can be, as naturally he's just been released. And the hour delay was simply because the customer stopped him, went through his stuff, and welcomed him back and said, you know, welcome back, Mr Spencer. I'm sure we'll be seeing you again. <laughs> yeah, it won't be too long before we meet again. And, yeah. And that would be sort of mid-2007. That's right, yeah, yeah. 2007. Um, and the next morning, after his first night at ours, I go up the shops to get a few bits and pieces. He's had a lie-in because he's, he's had a long day the day before and it's first day of freedom, he's going to have a lie-in. So he gets up about 8 o'clock, which is a lie-in for him. <laughs> I arrive back and he's holding a pamphlet in his hand that someone's put through the door and it's for a, a gardening company. And he says, I think this was them. And he's talking about the police. He says, some guy, he didn't put it through the letterbox, he knocked the door. I opened the door and he gave it to me in my hand. And as he turned away, there was a van facing the door where a camera could have been. And he thinks, I think, I think that's the, the surveillance people. He says, ring this number on this leaflet. And I ring it, and it's just dead. There's nothing there at all. There's not a false company or anything. And then I knock the other neighbours to see if anyone's added this pamphlet, and none of them have had it. So he's kind of a bit miffed by that. It's like, you know, it's like first day. And then we go up the shops. So I'm going to show him the neighbourhood where he hasn't been for a long time. And we go up the shops, and we nip in a few. And then we come out of a shop, and he says... Over the road behind me, if you look over my shoulder, there's a guy standing there. And there is, there's a guy just just lingering. And on the high street there, there's no benches. You don't really linger because there's nowhere to linger on the high street. And I notice him and I think, maybe he's been a bit paranoid here. Or, but we've had the leaflet come through and he knows where. And then we take a few steps to the next one and then he to the next shop. And he turns and he says, there's a woman up in the doorway up on the right. And I haven't seen her. But a few minutes later, I will spot her when she appears. And then the guy, this guy over the road is still lingering. He doesn't seem to... He just has a newspaper. He's not doing anything. He's just trying to blend in, I guess. And then we walk up a bit more and then we just turn and come back. And my dad looks at the guy over the road and the guy smiles. And it is them. It's pretty obvious. And he just watches us walk by. And we just, we just head back and my dad then makes some phone calls. He can't stay here. He's going to have to go. And that's what he does. He only stays at ours for a day. But... 
day one they're kind of on him and watching him. And the court case, does he have to appear in court for it to be dismissed or was it just It's just dropped? It just falls away. He'd contacted the British, British lawyers and there was no pressing, there was no warrants they could find. Whether they thought, oh, we'll start up again when he comes back with it or they might just think, fresh slate, but this time we know, we know him better now. We know how he works. We are going to get him this time. Um, but maybe we're just going to have to be a bit, go a bit further, do a few things we didn't do before. Well, this has certainly been a packed episode. Tony's killed a rival dealer, he's gone on the run to Spain and set up another operation which involved a ship. It's been quite a white knuckle ride, but there's still plenty more to come. Please join us for the conclusion of The Old Man and Me, where we'll be hearing about Tony's final jail sentence. We'll speak to one of his legal team and Jason tells us about the psychological effect of having a parent in and out of prison. It's released a week after this episode, so please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe to True Crime Investigators UK and in that way you won't miss it. Thanks of course go to Jason Wilson. Without his book, The Old Man and Me, this series wouldn't have been possible. Our editors are Angelica Dabbs and Ed Allen and our executive producer is Pete Allen, all from Carrot Cruncher Media.